Let's turn together in the Word of God to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. We're going to read from verse 22 to verse 58. The next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the Father, God, has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And it is written in the prophets, And they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, He who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. 
Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask you this morning to help us. Help us hear what Jesus is saying. Help us to understand. Remove from us the obstacles that are in the way that prevent us from understanding and hearing the truth of what Jesus is saying. And Lord, thank you for this precious gift. We want to see, we want to believe, we want to understand, we want to magnify and glorify you, Lord, for what you've done. So through this time that we have, looking in the scriptures, hearing from Jesus, we ask that it would be profitable, Lord, that we would truly understand and hear, and that we would be amazed and we would glorify you as you deserve, for the great things that you have done. Thank you so much for this life. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So far in the Gospel of John, we've seen Jesus' popularity soaring, haven't we? Surpassing even that of John the Baptist, who was hugely popular in his time. Now, this isn't surprising when you think about it. John the Baptist himself, who was recognized as a prophet by the people of Israel, joined his testimony to the testimonies of all the prophets, and he pointed his finger at Jesus. He stood in the long line of prophets testifying to Jesus. He, he stood there in the presence of Jesus, pointed his finger and said, This is the Son of God. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John points to him. He must increase and I must decrease. He's what this is all about. I'm his forerunner. I've come to prepare the way for him. Jesus publicly introduced himself to Israel at the Passover in Jerusalem. And he demonstrated his uniqueness 
and his authority by cleansing the temple, marching right into it and saying, this is my father's house. And what you're doing here disgusts him and me, and I'm cleansing it out for his sake. This was shocking, no doubt. And he performed many miracles that Passover in Jerusalem and got a lot of attention. In chapter 3 of the Gospel of John, we see that Nicodemus, someone who was very respected and a leader in Israel, even came to Jesus and said, you're doing many marvelous works. We know that you're from God. And so his public introduction to Israel was a sensation. His miracles made him very popular. And Jesus, from that point forward, continued to teach and to do many miracles, and so many crowds were following him. So we're seeing his popularity soar. In the beginning of John chapter 6, Jesus' popularity spikes again. It, come, it, it, it rises to a new level, doesn't it? Because at the beginning of John chapter 6, Jesus performs an unusually spectacular miracle, and he produces food for, it says in our Bibles, 5,000 men, not including women and children, probably 10,000 people. That's a conservative figure. He produces a a satisfying meal for all of them out of basically nothing. And the people see this miracle. It's amazing. And they think, surely this is the prophet. Surely this is the one that Moses said who would come who is like me to bring deliverance to Israel. And so they wanted to make Jesus king at that point. His popularity soaring. Now this is not to say that there hasn't been conflict already. We've seen conflict in the Gospel of John between Jesus and the leadership in Israel. And the great crowds that were following Jesus, that wasn't making the leadership happy. You know, they were, they were doing something that the leaders didn't want them to do by going after Jesus. And more and more of these people were becoming persuaded that Jesus was the Messiah. All of this, however, is about to change. So we're seeing... His popularity soar, and it's at this point that it's all about to change. And it's not because Jesus makes a mistake or a blunder. You know, we, we think a lot about that these days with the presidential race, right? You get a presidential candidate who kind of soars to the top because he's, he makes some good statements or people are excited about him, and then he makes a mistake and it all falls apart, right? You can think of candidates like that. That's not how it is with Jesus. It's not that he's getting all this popularity and then he makes some blunder and then everyone says, we're done. Jesus wants things to change. Amen? All this popularity he sees as not necessarily a good thing. And brothers and sisters, what we learn from this is that Jesus is not pleased with large numbers, merely. Have you ever heard people boast about the fastest growing religions in the world and things like that, right? And they say that that's some sort of proof that that religion is actually of God. Jesus never was like that. The fastest growing religions didn't, that wasn't important to him. Large numbers weren't important to him. Jesus, we learn also, is not pleased with zeal and self-sacrifice self-sacrificial devotion to him. Jesus is not pleased with zeal and self-sacrificial devotion to him merely. These people were rejecting 
the advice of the Pharisees and the leaders by going after Jesus, Jesus was not pleased with this, merely. Or we think of Peter, who said, Lord, I will lay down my life for you. Even if everybody else doesn't, I'm going to, right? Or you think of Paul in Galatians, where he says, look, having zeal for God, that's good, provided that it's true zeal, but zeal in and of itself isn't good. Jesus is not pleased or impressed by you or me by our zeal and our self-sacrificial devotion merely. What Jesus is pleased by, and this we get from his own mouth in the Gospels, what Jesus is pleased by is people who hear the word of God and do it. Amen? People who hear the word of God and do it. I think that as Christians today, and we see that in this world, Jesus remains popular. Lots of people still believe he's the Messiah. Lots of people still follow him. Lots of people still are zealous for him and devote themselves to him. And I think as the Christian church, we need to continually usher forth a challenge to the crowds. And we say, why are you really following Jesus here? Do you hear him? Do you hear God's word and his truth, and do you do it? Because we are not either impressed by just numbers or zeal. The crowds were not hearing the word of God and doing it, apparently. They brought with them, when they followed Jesus, their own framework of how the Messiah should be, right, and how religion should be, didn't they? They brought with their following of Jesus their own framework, And we'll see this as we go on in John chapter 6. John Calvin is right when he comments, They did not profit by the works of God as they ought to have done. For the true way of profiting would have been to acknowledge Christ as the Messiah in such a manner as to surrender themselves to be taught and governed by him and under his guidance to aspire to the kingdom of God. It's interesting, Calvin says they should have acknowledged his Messiahship in such a manner, meaning you can acknowledge Jesus is the the Messiah in different ways. You can acknowledge he's the Messiah and bring your own framework to to your following of him, or you can acknowledge he's the Messiah and do as Calvin said, okay, you are the teacher. You correct my framework, you know? I'm not just going to go with what I was taught growing up. I'm not just going to go with what I what I think or what I've heard, I'm going to go with what you say, Jesus, because you're the Son of God. To this end, to shake the crowd, to sift the crowd out of their fantasy, Jesus initiated the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 and the bread of life discourse. These were connected. When he fed that crowd, his intent was to preach this message that we're going to examine. To sift this crowd... We're told by John that the Passover was near. The crowds were thronging around Jesus. And I think Jesus, as as he knew the Passover was near, was thinking ahead to another Passover in the future. A Passover when the crowds would throng him again. But this time, not excited that he's the Messiah, but the crowds would throng him shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus' death was undoubtedly on his mind. And it's out of this mindset where he's seeing all these crowds and he knows it's superficial 
and he knows there's the next Passover after this one, they're going to be yelling crucify. His death's on his mind. Out of that mindset comes this bread of life discourse, and it's very important. One preacher comments, there's a sense in which at this point, we arrive at the beginning of the deepest notes in this gospel according to John. The signs in the realm of works were not the most wonderful and stupendous, but the signs in the realm of words. What Jesus is about to say here strikes the deepest notes in the Gospel of John, deeper than the miracles we've seen. The Bread of Life discourse, that whole episode, extends from verse 22 to verse 71 to the end of the chapter. So this morning we're only going to look at a part of the Bread of Life Discourse, and next week we'll look at another part. My hope this morning is to draw out the core message, the main message of the Bread of Life Discourse, which is Jesus' teaching that he is the Bread of Life. So that's what we're going to look at this morning, the main point of what he's saying in this chapter, that he is the Bread of Life. Next week... We'll look at this discourse again, all the way to the end, God willing, and we'll examine another important feature in this discourse, not the most important or central feature, but important nonetheless, and that is Jesus' controversial teaching about the ability, or perhaps rather the inability, of men and women to come to him. But first this morning, the main message. I divide this sermon up into two sections. Number one, we're going to look at the unfolding nature of the discourse. I don't know if you noticed when we read this, but did you notice that there's an unfolding nature to this discourse? That is, we're going to go through the discourse and we're going to follow how Jesus builds upon his words, how he builds his doctrine. He unpacks his teaching on the bread of life. And I detect here four layers or steps that he takes. So there's sort of four teaching steps that Jesus takes that he builds one upon the other. Or if you will, he unfolds it one layer after another. Jesus takes us from this discourse, you could say, into the sanctuary or the Holy of Holies. And we have to pass through curtain after curtain after curtain until we get to the real point that he's making, which is truly profound. So we'll look at this And this will take up most of the sermon is looking at these, the unfolding nature of the discourse. And then lastly, I'll close by talking about the sacramental view of the discourse. And I'll explain what that means. The sacramental view. So, the unfolding nature of the discourse. Here is the first layer that Jesus teaches. And if you want to write these down, that might be helpful. Layer number one. There is such a thing as the imperishable bread of life. And Jesus is the one who will give it to you. That's the first point that Jesus makes. There is such a thing as bread of life. And Jesus is the one who will give it to you. But first, let's look at the context. Verse 22. Now, from verse 22 to 25, John's just setting up the setting of the discourse. Jesus fed over 5,000 people. It was evening. 
And as it was getting dark, he told his disciples to get into the boat and go to the other side of the lake. And Jesus himself didn't go into the boat himself. He went up on a mountain to pray. The crowd saw this. They know Jesus didn't get into the boat. Well, in the morning, they wanted to find Jesus again. So they go to the same place where he had fed them, where he was the night before, and they couldn't find him. So they're looking for him, and boats are drifting around, and they all decide, let's go to the other side. Maybe he's there. And then they get over there. They find Jesus with his disciples on the other side, but they knew he hadn't gotten to the boat with the disciples. So they're surprised to see him there. And so they say, Jesus, how did you get here? When did you get here, right? Well, we know that he walked on water. He met his disciples in the middle of the lake. And when he got into the boat, if you remember, it immediately appeared on the other side of the shore. He doesn't share that with them, but they're just puzzled. How did you get over there? And notice in verse 25, they call him rabbi, which is very interesting. Teacher, rabbi, instructor. They're expressing their zeal to Jesus by saying this. Jesus, we acknowledge you as a teacher. And we, we are expressing to you when we say, when did you get here? How much we want to learn from you. Because we're looking for you this whole time. How did you get here, Jesus? See our enthusiasm? But it's interesting they call him rabbi because as we see in this chapter, do they really respect Jesus as a teacher? It's interesting that out of someone's mouth they can say rabbi, teacher. But when he actually begins to teach and say things that they don't like or agree with or understand, then that's where the rubber meets the road, right? Do you really consider Jesus to be the teacher? Jesus sees through them and in verse 26, notice he does not answer their question. They ask, when, when did you get here? We're seeking you. He doesn't answer their question because he sees through them. They're not really seeking him, actually. They think they are, but he's, they are not really seeking him. A.B. Bruce says, to their warm inquiries, and that's what they were, to their warm inquiries as to how he came there, he replied by a chilling observation concerning the true motivation of their zeal. So Jesus just throws the chill upon their warmth. Not that Jesus never answers our questions, as we see in this discourse itself, Jesus does answer their questions. But here's the thing we see, is that Jesus doesn't have much time for superficiality. He cuts through superficiality to get to the vital and important thing. We should thank him that he does that. Jesus doesn't want us to be superficial either. And he says in verse 26, I tell you the truth, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. What, what does he mean they didn't see signs? Didn't, that, didn't they see his miracle that he performed and didn't they, they believe and hail him as the Messiah? But look down at verse 30 with me. Jesus was absolutely right in what he said because look what the crowd says in verse 30. What then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? So here they are asking him for a sign. Confirm that you're the Messiah. But it's funny because just earlier they had believed he was the Messiah after seeing the miracle. And I think what's going on here is it's true that when they saw the miracle of the feeding, they believed he was the Messiah. But it just shows that they didn't really have a persuasion that he was the Messiah. And when Jesus started to do things that they didn't really understand or agree with, they started to kind of back off their initial excitement about he's him being the Messiah. Give us another sign. We're still not convinced. 
And so Jesus is saying, you're seeking me not because you really know who I am. Now, I don't think Jesus is saying that you guys only think about food. All you ever think about is food, okay? The Bible says that that the Jewish people who have not believed are the enemies of the gospel. They're the ones who are most hostile to the gospel, as we can see in Saul of Tarsus. But just because they're enemies of the gospel, we shouldn't misrepresent them. I don't believe that they only thought about food, and that's what Jesus is saying here. But I think what is going on is that Jesus is saying, you, you saw that I fed you, and you understood that in a particular way. You understood that wrongly. You didn't see the significance of that sign. You didn't know that I was pointing to myself as the bread of life. And what you saw there was a miracle of blessing I provided for you. What you saw was a miracle of blessing that confirmed your framework and that confirmed your personal righteousness, right? We, the people of Israel, are doing what we're supposed to do, so God's going to send the Messiah now, and God's going to bless us. Hey, look, Jesus just blessed us. We must be personally righteous. Let's make him king now. And so they missed the significance of the miracle. And in verse 27, Jesus tells them plainly his first layer of doctrine in the Bread of Life discourse. Do not work for the food which perishes. And please let us hear this this morning as well. Let's just not hear Jesus saying that back then to them, but let's hear him saying that to us as well. Friends, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. So what Jesus is saying first in this discourse is, there's such a thing as imperishable bread that endures to eternal life. Now he's not talking about physical bread anymore, is he? He's actually telling us, you need to, you need to look beyond the sign here and the symbol to the real thing. And I am, I am the one who will give you bread that endures to eternal life. Jesus, of course, is not slamming physical food. And we shouldn't take this verse to mean that we shouldn't work for our food, right? But Jesus is saying there's another kind of food that you should be earnest about, in fact, more earnest about than the food that you work for each day. You need physical food to live, don't you? But have you noticed that you work really hard for physical food? You spend a lot of energy and sweat working for it. But it never ultimately satisfies you, right? Because you have to keep working for it and keep eating. So how many of you have ever eaten a meal and that was the last meal you ever needed, right? Even after Thanksgiving dinner, right? When you say, I, I'm never going to eat again. <laughs> what happens? Well, the next day, you're starving again, right? And not only is it not, is it not permanently satisfying you, you have to continually eat physical food over and over and over and over again. Ultimately, you're going to die. If you stop eating completely physical food, you'll die. If you keep eating physical food, you're going to die. And Jesus is saying here, you need to be more concerned to get the bread of life, the imperishable bread that I'm informing you about now and telling you about, that will actually give you life. 
You eat it and you'll have life forever. There's a deeper need than your physical food. There's a deeper hunger than physical hunger. I think that this deeper need is recognized by non-Christian religions. I think if you go to any non-Christian religion, they're going to say that you need more than, you know, milk and, bu- milk and toast and eggs, right? But these non-Christian religions will differ on what that need really is, right? I think of Buddhism, for example. Buddhism says you need more than milk, toast, and eggs. Uh, what you need is to realize the truth about life so that you can escape life altogether, so that you can become extinguished. It's interesting that in Buddhism, it's the cessation of life that you ultimately need. But they do recognize a deeper need. So non-Christian religions recognize a deeper need, and they go to other things to try to satisfy that deeper need. But Jesus declares, I am the one who will give you what you truly need. You're going to find it in me. And he says in verse 27, God has set his seal upon me. That is, God has certified, God has authenticated me as the one who gives this bread. I think of chapter 5 where Jesus is arguing for his identity and he appeals to the, to the Father's testimony in Scripture concerning him. There is salvation in no other. So that is the first layer. There is such a thing as imperishable bread and Jesus will give it. We should be proclaiming that as the church, amen? There is such a thing. There, there's a need that we all have and it can be met by Jesus Christ and it leads to eternal life. The second thing Jesus teaches in this discourse. He builds upon what he has said. Look with me at verse 32. The second thing Jesus teaches is this. It is the Father who gives this bread of life, and he gives it out of heaven. This is an important point, and I'll, I hope to explain this now. He gives it out of heaven. Now look at verse 28. When Jesus said there's a deeper hunger and there's, a, there's an imperishable bread that they can have, it seems like in verse 28 the Jews did not object to this idea. On the contrary, they seem to accept the idea and then they ask, okay, what do we do? Tell us what to do to get the bread. What must we do to work the works that God requires? See, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, they would have remembered, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And it wasn't unusual for Jews in Jesus' day to think of the Torah or the law of God as bread. And so they're thinking, it's true. You know, we definitely need more than physical food. We need instruction from God. We need the law of God. We need the Torah. And if we obey the Torah, if we commit ourselves to the Torah and do the works that are required, that is really what we need. That is really going to satisfy our our desires and our hunger and give us eternal life. So I think what they hear here in Jesus is, they probably hear him just saying, you need to follow the Torah and be satisfied. And they say, okay, Jesus, I agree. Now tell us what is the works that we need to do. Notice how optimism, optimistic they are about their obedience. Do you get the sense that they think they can do it? They kind of sound like the Israelites at Mount Sinai, right? Everything, God, you tell us to do, we'll do. Just tell us what it is. 
So they're optimistic about their obedience. But notice in verse 29, Jesus surprises them here. And I think what he says in verse 29 is so shocking that it it shakes them up. And in verse 30 and 31, they say, okay, give us a sign again. We're not convinced you're the Messiah anymore, right? Can prove to us you're the second Moses. It's so shocking what he says in verse 29. Notice in verse 29, Jesus moves from the plural to the singular. That's an important thing to notice. They say, what shall we do that we might work the works, plural, that God requires? God has a lot of things he wants us to do. What are those things, Jesus? And Jesus changes from the plural to the singular. He says, actually, there's only one thing you need to do. Just one. You can see him shifting from a a works-based mentality to faith. Not plural, but singular, brothers and sisters. Isn't it amazing what we proclaim? What Jesus has proclaimed and the apostles have proclaimed and we proclaim as Christians when we go out and tell the world what they need to do. What does God require? One thing. One. Isn't that amazing? We have here one of the clearest statements in the Bible on what we must do. This is the work of God. That is, this is the work God requires that you believe in him whom he has sent. You believe in Jesus. You believe in a particular object. Notice the importance of what you're believing in here. It's not just believe in anything. Oh, he's sincere. Oh, he has faith. In what? You believe in him whom God has sent. Have you done that? That's that's the crux. That's the core of it. That's the difference between life and death. People always want to add to that, don't they? Can't just be that. Well, if you think that, then you're in good company with the crowds that abandoned Jesus at this time when he taught this. And so verse 30 and 31, when they hear this bold claim, they demand more proof, and they take Jesus to the episode in the Old Testament where Moses gave the people bread, particularly manna from heaven. It's funny that they would do this because Jesus had just fed them supernaturally with bread, right? But that shows the pride or the unbelief or the hardness of man's heart that even though they could see a wonderful miracle, they start nitpicking about it and say, well, no, I can't accept what you're really saying, so we're going to have to get out of this one. You fed us once. Moses fed us for 40 years, right? There's a difference between these miracles. So prove that you're, prove that you're really Moses by doing it again and again. In fact, do it so often that we don't have to labor anymore for physical food, right? Just feed us all the time. That's what they ask in verse 34. And you know, Moses gave us manna from heaven. It was was supernatural bread. You multiplied the barley and the fish. That's earthly food. Give us some food that is supernatural, that we've never seen before, you know? Manna was unearthly. It was otherworldly. But what Jesus tells them in verse 32 is very important. He says, Moses didn't really give you bread out 
of heaven. Sure, it came out of the sky. But you miss the point of the manna when you think that is the bread that God gave you and the bread that God gives out of heaven. When in fact, that's, that bread was just a shadow of the real bread, he says in verse 32. My father is the one who gives you the true bread out of heaven. There's an emphasis here in what Jesus is saying with this phrase, out of heaven. We've seen that there is bread of life, amen? We've seen that Christ is the one who gives it, and now the next thing that Jesus is teaching in the bread of life discourse is that this bread of life that Jesus gives, its source and its origin is not of this world. It's from God, out of heaven. It's manna. You remember what, why it's called manna in the Old Testament? Because manna means in Hebrew, what's that, right? What is it? And Jesus is saying, the real what's that, the real what is it, is not the bread that Moses gave, but the bread that the Father gives. And he says in verse 32, it is that which comes down out of heaven which gives life to the world. In other words, when we believe in Jesus Christ, we're believing in something otherworldly, aren't we? We're believing in something that's not of man. We're believing in something that's not common or understood by men. We're believing in something that blows the mind. And we're saying, this is from the Father. This is from God. This doesn't have its source and origin on earth. This is something that's come out of heaven. This is the bread of life. What will ultimately satisfy and meet your deepest need is something that earth cannot give you. Amen? But only God can give. So that's the second layer. Its source and its origin is the Father, and he gives it out of heaven. Now, so far, we haven't been told explicitly by Jesus what it is. It's only been implied. Now we'll Here, as Jesus takes the third step in this discourse and he unfolds what the bread of life is. Because notice in verse 34, after Jesus has said all this, they still don't know it's him in verse 34. They just say, Lord, give us always this bread. They don't know it's him. And it's like the woman at the well where Jesus is saying, you know, I will give you water that will make you never thirst again. And she says, give me this water so I don't have to come back to this well. It's just like that. They don't get what he's saying. And so Jesus has to become explicit to advance the conversation. Now, verse 34 gives us the third layer, which is this. Jesus Christ himself is the bread of life. He's the one who gives it, and he is it. He gives himself. Verse 35, excuse me. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. This is the first of seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. The others are these. I am the light of the world. I am the gate I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
I am the true vine. I believe that all of these seven I am statements are ultimately interconnected. That to say he is the bread of life is to say he's the light of the world, is to say he's the gate, the good shepherd, the resurrection, the life, the way, the truth, and the life, the true vine, all of them are together. And Jesus doesn't say, I am a bread of life, right? He puts the article on this. I am the bread of life. There is only one bread of life, and that's me. There is only one gate. I am the gate. There is only one good shepherd. I can't think of another. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. There's only one way. There's only one truth. There's only one life, and it's him. And if you miss him, if you don't get him, then you will not have life or light. By saying he's the bread of life, he's saying that deeper need, I am he who has come down from heaven to meet that need. Now this shocks the people as you see in verse 41 and 42. They say, how can he say that he's the bread that came down of heaven? from heaven. We know where he's from. He's not from heaven. They don't know him. What is that need that we have that Jesus meets by coming from heaven as the bread of life? I believe the text itself is clear that the need that you and I have, brothers and sisters and friends, the need that Jesus meets is the need for life itself. And we don't need to look further than the phrase bread of life itself to see what the need is. He's the bread that gives life. Verse 33. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and does what? What what need does it meet? It gives life to the world. And look with me at verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. So by receiving the bread, what need is met? The need for eternal life. I am the bread of life. Verse 49, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. It didn't give them life. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. It's life that you and I need. Have you identified that as your need? Now, I think if you superficially think about life, then you might not identify that as your need. But if you think about life in a biblical perspective, life is a pretty loaded idea, isn't it? Jesus says many things about life, and the Bible teaches us many things. There's a lot involved in life. First of all, life requires righteousness, doesn't it? If you want for life, if you lack life, it's an absolute fact that you lack righteousness because the wages of sin is death. So you're saying, I really need life. I'm abiding in death. I'm under the wrath of God. There's no life in me. Why? Because I am unrighteous, unacceptable, blameworthy in God's sight. So life implies righteousness. Life implies truth. Jesus says that this is eternal life, to know you, the only true God. Knowing God is life. Knowing the truth of who God is. Understanding his being 
and his nature and what's in God, his righteousness and his grace. If a person doesn't know God, then they don't have life. Life implies and involves peace, safety, freedom from fear. When we long for life, what we're longing for is for righteousness, truth, peace, and the knowledge of God. I don't think we're just longing for, let me continue to exist in this horrible existence, right? What we're asking for is the knowledge of God and peace and righteousness. This is the hunger that the Bible talks about, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, longing for truth, esteeming wisdom and knowledge as above gold and silver, and longing for God himself. And Jesus is saying, life is met in me. Do you want life, righteousness, truth, peace? All the things you long for and all the things you need are found in me. What does it mean to not hunger any longer? Verse 35, he who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will not thirst. I think D.A. Carson says it perfectly when he says, faith in Jesus eliminates any sense of lack. Okay? What that means is when you, when you come to understand who Jesus is in truth and you believe in him, then you don't feel like you lack righteousness anymore, Right? Amen? Then you don't feel like you lack the knowledge of God anymore. I know God now, right? I know who he is. I'm not longing and desiring to finally figure out who God is. I know. I'm not saying we can't grow in our understanding. But what we're saying is we've come to a place of truly knowing God. I'm not in darkness anymore. I'm in light. I don't sense a lack there. And I don't have a lack of peace either. Yeah, Yes, in this fallen world, there's trouble. And I look forward to the day when Jesus comes. But when I know Jesus and put my faith in Jesus, ultimately I understand I have peace with God and all things are working together for my good. And so I ultimately feel secure. Right? I think this is what Jesus is saying. I am the bread of life. Whoever believes me, you won't hunger. You won't lack anymore. You'll have what you need by believing in me. And if you don't believe in me, guess what? You'll always hunger and you'll not have what you need. I don't believe when Jesus said, I am the bread of life, or I am the living, uh, I am the light of the world, or resurrection life, the gate, all these things, that they're supposed to be known merely as statements that Jesus made. Okay? So I don't believe that we're supposed to just say, Jesus said he was the bread of life. I believe he's the bread of life because he said he is the bread of life. I believe these are supposed to be known by experience so that we can say it too. I agree with Jesus. He is the bread of life. By coming to him, I am not hungry. By believing in him, I am not thirsty. Amen? So he says, I am the light of the world. We say, I agree. He is the light of the world. By believing in him, I'm not in darkness anymore. I am the gate. He who comes in by me and out by me will have pasture. I agree. 
By believing in Jesus Christ, I have found pasture. Amen? I'm the good shepherd. I agree. And we proclaim as Christians to the world, Jesus is the good shepherd. He is the one who laid down his life for the sheep in love. So we're to proclaim these things, not just repeat them mindlessly, but we know them to be true through faith. The fourth layer answers the next question. And that question is, how is it that Jesus himself is the bread of life? How does he give us life? How does he function as the bread of life? How does he make good that claim that he's the bread of life? So we've seen that there is such a thing as bread of life. Jesus gives it. We've seen that the bread of life is ultimately otherworldly from the Father coming out of heaven. What is it? And we've seen that it is Jesus. But now, how is Jesus the bread of life? And this brings us to our fourth and final layer in the bread of life discourse, which is this. The bread of life that Jesus gives is his flesh, which he gives for the life of the world. He gives it, right? He's the giver and he's the gift. And it's specifically said by Jesus, he gives life by giving his flesh for the life of the world. And now we enter the sanctuary in the Holy of Holies. We've passed through the curtains and we've come to the main thing. When Jesus says he is the bread of life, he's not speaking generally. He is specifically thinking of his flesh, which he will give for the life of the world. In other words, Jesus is not saying, I am the bread of life simply because I came. You know, I'm the bread of life because I'm here. I'm the bread of life because I'm teaching you. All those things are true and beautiful. But what he's saying is, I am the bread of life precisely because I will give my flesh for the life of the world. And if I came, and if I was here, and I taught you, and I did miracles, and I left without dying for you, I would not be the bread of life. True? This is what he says in verse 51. In the last part of the verse, for the life, the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And in verse 52, this causes an uproar. The Jews began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus is adding a new layer. He's taking another step. Not only am I the bread of life, it's my flesh that I'm going to give you. The Greek word argue is actually war. A war erupted in the crowd over this statement. And again, I don't believe we should misrepresent the Jews here. I don't believe that they thought Jesus was speaking literally by saying, you need to eat me. I'm, you need to become cannibals. I think what they're doing here is arguing over what he meant. Verse 52 is, how can he give us his flesh to eat? I think it's a, a question that's open, and they're arguing about it. What does he mean by this? I don't think they thought, he's saying we need to actually physically consume him. 
But they're arguing, what does this mean? And it's an excellent question. What does he mean? How? It's a great question, isn't it? How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Well, here's how. The language that Jesus is using is unmistakably the language of sacrifice. He says in verse 51, I will give for the life of the world my flesh. I'm going to give for their life my flesh. This is sacrificial language. I will give my body in exchange for or for the benefit of the world and to give life to the world. So somehow his giving of his flesh and death is what gives life to the world. And so we're talking about sacrifice here. Basically, Jesus is saying, unless I die, you can't live. That's strange, isn't it? Unless I die, you can't live. And brothers and sisters, that is totally inexplicable unless he's talking about sacrifice. If he's not talking about sacrifice, how could his death give us life? And that Jesus is referring to his death is confirmed by what he goes on to say. He introduces a new word. He introduces the word blood. Look at verse 53 with me. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. So he brings up the word blood now. And the word blood speaks of death. As Carson points out, the primary symbolic reference of blood in the Bible is not to life, but to violent death. So we say, I'm going to give you my blood to drink, implying his violent death. Jesus later said, this is my body broken for you, and this is my blood poured out for you. When he said these words broken and poured out, we should understand in these words two things, broken and poured out. We should understand, number one, Jesus' body was literally broken for us. It was torn for us. And his blood was figuratively or literally poured out for us. It was literally poured out. So when he said, this is my body and this is my blood, poured out and broken, he's talking about him literally being torn and broken. And secondly, we should think of him serving us this food. I'm breaking it and pouring it out into your cup. I'm pouring it out and breaking it so that you can eat. It's a meal I've prepared for your life. This is the sanctuary and the glory of the gospel, is it not, Christians? Is the glory of the gospel not that Christ, who is God, who has life in himself, he came into the world from heaven, from the Father, otherworldly, and he came into the world specifically to die in order to give his life for unholy, now I'm talking about us, unrighteous, 
idolaters who are worthy of death. Isn't that the glory of the gospel? This is what Jesus is saying. And this isn't Christians interpreting him later on. This is Jesus himself saying, I've come out of heaven in order to give my flesh for the life of the world. For the life of the sinful, wicked, idolatrous, evil world that's worthy of death, that deserves destruction, the glory of it is my grace in coming to die for you. And we learn in the Bible that the reason Jesus Christ's death provides life for us is only because he bore our sins on the cross. Only because he suffered the penalty and the punishment and the chastisement that we deserve. That's the only reason his death provides life for you. All of your guilt and the punishment you and I deserve, he bore that. He took that. The cross was nasty business. There was tearing and bleeding and suffocating and pain and darkness and abandonment and shame. All the things we fear most happened to Jesus on the cross. True? All the things we fear most. He was made a curse, the Bible tells us, by God on the cross. He became a curse for us for you and I, to deliver us from the curse of the law. He was completely given over to death for us, to deliver us from death. He is the one who did this. And why did he do this? Because our sins deserve destruction. The justice of God could not be relaxed. And so Jesus, in order to save us and give us life, had to offer himself to God and satisfy the justice of God so that we could be spared, so that we could be saved. So it was sacrifice. And it was sacrifice that was accepted by God. For as Jesus says, him hath God the Father sealed. God has authenticated him, approved of him, certified him, certified Jesus to do this work. This wasn't Jesus being a maverick in the universe. This was Jesus doing the will of God and God accepted and approved of that sacrifice. And so Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. And when Jesus rose, he rose with full authority and power to give life to everyone who believes. He rose full of life-giving power. I have atoned for your sins. I have died for them. They were laid on me. I suffered the full extent of the curse For you on your behalf, God has approved this. God has satisfied it. Now believe and you will have life. And he calls us to himself. He calls you to himself. He calls the world to himself to eat and partake of him. It's interesting that Augustine so long ago rightly understood Jesus' words here. And he commented in Latin, but I won't read the Latin, believe and you have eaten. That's what Augustine He took out of this. When Jesus is saying, eat, eat, he's actually meaning believe. It's interesting that Augustine would say that, who was a Roman Catholic. When you've believed, you have eaten, and when you have eaten, you have united yourself to him in his death and in his resurrection life. Look with me at verse 56 and 57. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, abides in me, and I in him. And I believe verse 57 is the explanation of this verse. As the living Father sent me, 
and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. I believe that's the meaning of abiding in him. That is this. We abide in Christ when we have our life from him. And he abides in us by imparting his life to us. It is through faith that we abide in him. And by believing in him, his life is given to me. And his life is in me. Kind of like, maybe just by way of a crude analogy, I thought of electricity. So you have an appliance, and you have a power source, and you plug that appliance into the power source, right? You put the appliance into the power source, and what happens to the power? It comes into the appliance. And the appliance is abiding in the power, and the power is abiding in the appliance. That's a crude physical example, but I get that as the sense. When you believe in Jesus, you come into his life, and his life comes into you. Everyone who has believed in him is abiding in him and living by him. And everyone who has believed, and I want to encourage us this morning, all of our sins have been borne by him, and they are removed. If you believe in him, your sins have been taken away. Were you struggling this week with your sins? I know we all sinned this week. That's not my question. But were you struggling this week with your sins? Were you feeling like, ah, I'm sinning, I'm therefore in God's sight blameworthy, sinful, dirty, unrighteous, not acceptable to him. I don't have life. Well, you're not thinking right if you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, that's true. But if you are a Christian, your sins have been borne away by him and are removed. And what you do have because you've believed in him is righteousness, which has been counted to you. And it's not your own. It's from heaven. It's manna righteousness, right? It's what is it righteousness? Because it's strange and weird. What is this? It's not human righteousness. It's the righteousness of God given through faith out of heaven. And that's what how Jesus finishes this up in verse 58, isn't it? This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this manna will live forever. So this is the main message of the bread of life discourse, and he unfolds it in these four layers. There is such a thing as bread of life, and I will give it to you. It's from above. It is me. It is specifically my flesh and my blood that I give sacrificially for you, received by faith. I'd just like to close this morning, if you'll give me a few more minutes of attention. I'd like to close, because we're going to be taking communion. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. And I'd like to just offer this brief thought upon the sacramental view of this discourse. The sacramental view is this, that when Jesus spoke of eating and drinking his flesh and blood, he was actually meaning the institution of the Lord's Supper. Have you ever heard of this interpretation? When Jesus said, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood, the sacramental view says he was actually thinking of the Lord's Supper in which we eat and drink, not merely symbols of the body and blood of Jesus Christ, but literally his body and his blood. 
And by eating, literally, his body and blood in the Lord's Supper, we receive eternal life. That's a view that's held by the Roman Catholic Church most famously. You've heard of this before. Was that what Jesus was talking about? Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, and what I mean is, I mean, get yourself over to a church, get that bread and wine consecrated, and eat it, then you'll have eternal life. Now the argument for this view is boils down to three things. Number one, they say, well, the language sounds like the Lord's Supper. Take, eat, this is my body. Take, drink, this is my blood. Jesus is saying, eat and drink my blood. It sounds the same, so it must be the same. If it sounds the same, that must be the basis of this teaching. The basis of this teaching in the Bread of Life discourse is the Lord's Supper. Secondly, verse 55, Jesus says, My flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. Jesus is explicitly telling us, emphasizing, I'm really talking about really eating something. And thirdly, the argument goes, if the Lord's Supper is merely a symbolic thing or a ritual, then it undermines its significance. It undermines its significance. Why do it if it's just symbolic? I'd like to share a quote from Pope Francis. So you can see how relevant this is. When we celebrate the Mass, we don't accomplish a representation of the Lord's Supper. No, it is not a representation. It is something else. It is a theophany. A theophany, which means God manifesting. The Lord is made present on the altar to be offered to the Father for the salvation of the world. So you can see in the Lord's Supper, they think it's really going down and Jesus is really there and we're really consuming him. Now I'd just like to say briefly these things. Number one, the Gospel of John shows throughout to be highly non-sacramental. Have you noticed when we've talked about how John downplays baptism? We've already seen that. And did you notice that in John chapter 13, 14, 15, John completely omits the Lord's Supper. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record Jesus taking the bread and breaking it, saying, take and eat. John completely omits the institution of the Lord's Supper. And you'd think if that really was so central to Jesus' teaching and his point, that that wouldn't have been omitted. Secondly, it's true that the language is similar, the Bread of Life Discourse and the Lord's Supper language, but it doesn't follow, therefore, that the Lord's Supper is the basis of the Bread of Life Discourse. The Bread of Life Discourse arose out of the miracle of the, five, of the feeding of the 5,000 and the discussion Jesus was having about manna from heaven. The basis of his teaching was that historical setting right here in John chapter 6, not Jesus thinking about the Lord's Supper. In other words, if there were no such thing as the institution of the Lord's Supper, if Jesus never gave us that ritual, the bread of life's discourse still would have happened just as it happened. Do you believe that? Because he was talking to them about bread. Thirdly, verse 55, my flesh is true flesh and my blood is true drink. I'd like to share a quote from Marcus Dodds who I think nails it on the nails the nail on the head here. The difficulty of the statement disappears when it is perceived that the figure of speech 
is not to be found in the words flesh and blood, but in the words eating and drinking. The actual flesh and blood, the human life of Christ, was given for men. So when a Roman Catholic reads verse 55, they read verse 55 and they say, eating and drinking is literal. Right? I have to literally eat and drink something. Literally. The part that kind of is a little bit more fuzzy is the, is the flesh and blood part. I don't really mean we're going to go take a bite out of Jesus' body up there hanging on the cross, but I mean, you know, somehow the bread and the wine turn into the body of blood. You know, the, the flesh and the blood part becomes the figurative one or the one that kind of gets interpreted in different ways. But the eating and drinking is literal. But Marcus Dodds points out, no, you've got it backwards. The flesh and the blood is literal. It's the eating and the drinking that's the figurative. And you can see it's figurative throughout the bread of life discourse, right? Jesus really gave his flesh and blood. And we really eat it by faith. Does that make sense? It's the believing that is the eating, which is the figurative part. And finally, it's not true that the significance of the Lord's Supper is undermined if it's not literally eating his flesh and blood. Just because it is not what saves us, that doesn't mean it has no meaning. Our Lord Jesus Christ commanded us to observe the Lord's Supper, which we're going to do. First of all, it's a memorial. We do it in remembrance of him. We do it for his sake. It's full of meaning. Lord, we remember that you died for us. We remember that your blood was poured out. And it's tangible. We're reenacting the Lord's Supper. And it reminds us that this is real history. We're not just talking about ideas. 2,000 years ago, right before Jesus was crucified, he literally took bread, broke it, and said, this is my body given for you. This is my blood poured out for you. And he went and died. And the Christians have continually reenacted that moment ever since. It's also a proclamation. His death we proclaim until he comes. So when we take the Lord's Supper, we're, te- we're proclaiming to ourselves. I hope you do that when you take it. You're preaching to yourself. He died for me. This is where life is found. And we're preaching to one another and we're preaching it to the world. It's also instructive. It teaches us in symbols, what Jesus taught us here in the Bread of Life discourse. That his death provided freely our need. So brothers and sisters, in closing, the Bread of Life discourse is not pointing to the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper and the Bread of Life discourse are pointing to the death of Jesus Christ and to the life that we have through faith in him. So as we take the Lord's Supper this morning, let's remember what it is pointing to. Let's remember that his body and blood were literally poured out for us and broken for us as a sacrificial atonement for our sins so that if we believe, we will have righteousness and life. And let's remember also that Jesus is not impressed by numbers or by zeal. What he is looking for is for you to hear the word of God and to believe. Please stand with me.
Lord, we thank you for the bread of God, the bread out of heaven, the sacrifice of your Son and the righteousness of God through faith. We give you thanks this morning again. We pray, Lord, that you would help us as we take the Lord's Supper to remember our Lord Jesus Christ, to be instructed, and to proclaim him and his death. And Lord, I pray for each Christian here, each child of God, that you would encourage each one that, that through faith we have life and our sins are forgiven. And I also pray, Lord, for anyone who's not a Christian this morning, that you would help them recognize their need, recognize their unrighteousness, recognize their need for your death, your sacrifice, so that they may live. Give them that hunger and thank you that you will satisfy it. And Lord, we thank you again and praise you. You're so worthy of all of this. In Jesus' name, amen.